Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and here's another episode of your podcast series. Today, I have on the show with me, Mark Burns. Mark has worked with a full range of world-class athletes, and I've been lucky enough to get to know some of his work because of his background helping some of the top squash players in the game be the physical beasts that they are. Notably, Joel Macon and Muhammad Al-Shabagi, plus plenty of others he has in his stable at the moment. Mark brings a really unique angle to the strength and conditioning side of training the athletes and is really bespoke and detailed about what he does. I love this as a lot of the conversation began to center around the mindset of how the mind and the training can be the gateway for all to follow. But we really dig into the the mental side of this. So you'll find some real gems in here about how to view training, some examples of world-class athletes and what they do mentally and physically, how he sees common themes that come from a range of sports, the attitudes and behaviors of what he views as talent, what mental toughness is, and some awesome advice for different players at different stages of their careers. We also touch on the mindset of injuries and his best mental tips for that. Finally, he shares where he feels the greatest gains are going to be made in the physical side of elite squash players. I think you'll be surprised at what he says, so do stick around to the end to hear that. So without further ado, please welcome Mark Burns. Mark Burns, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Thanks for joining me today. I know you're a busy man and you're doing some really good work out there. But for those that have not come across you yet, uh, would you be able to maybe give us a brief introduction to yourself and the work you're currently doing? Yeah, no dramas. Um, Thanks for having me on, Jesse. So I guess at the moment, I would say I have two full-time jobs. Um, So I'll kind of work through them just in sequence. So I work at a top sporting university as their performance lead. Um, so that would be managing a relatively large sort of interdisciplinary team. So that would be your S&T coaches, your physiotherapists, your physiologists, psychologists, nutrition, lifestyle, etc. And sort of our remit here is to produce like almost world leading or match winning junior and senior internationals um, across a number of sports as we go where squash is, is, is sort of one of the main ones here. So it would be one of our flagship sports. Um, 
recently hosting just the Commonwealth Games here just in the summer. Um, and then aside from that, my second full-time job, then I, I have my own sort of private coaching, squash coaching business, mm-hmm. specifically catering towards, I guess, top junior and senior squash players um, with a real particular focus on the, the physical side and then how it might relate to sort of technical, tactical, uh, mental capabilities that they may have. So I'll sort of refrain from mentioning all the names, but I guess the, the couple of notable ones would be uh, Joe Makin, obviously, Mohammed, um, Staffel Surdy, Nathan Lake, Omar Mossad at the moment. Um, so, yeah, pretty busy, bit of a workaholic, don't sleep very much. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah, wow. No, so well, a lot of, uh, lot of feathers, feathers in, your, in your bow there, so to speak. Um, is that the right expression? Probably not. No, <laughs> I bet it sounded good at the time. Um, so let's just explore the, the the kind of the squash route for a second you know um how did you get into that what's your journey into that squash field and obviously working with some of the the, the physically best athletes in the world right now yeah of course um so it's a bit of a, a roundabout way i guess where a really good friend of mine back in school he was a really good squash player for for, for ireland um he, he kind of tried he went into being a professional squash player then after that so I was exposed to it from a, re- a reasonably young age. Um, tennis was my original background, and then I transitioned across to rugby and then weightlifting just after that. But just by chance then, when I moved across to Birmingham about six years ago, the, the first athletes that I coached um, ever coming across here were basically the, the university squash team. So it sort of just reignited this, this sort of interest with the racket sports and, and sort of squash in particular, just just the good friend and then, um it's just sort of continued to grow from there and then Mm, as it sort of grew I I sort of realized that the squash is sort of somewhat following the old school trend still and maybe not caught up and I'll say in inverted commas sort of new age sports science as much as what it could be so Mm -hmm. it sort of just like gravitated a bit more into it and then just coupled with that interest um I sort of started to break the sport down break the athletes down and, and sort of what they would look physiology uh wise and then biomechanical mm-hmm. um to then try to make change so that's sort of how i've ended up here in nice. some regard and then there's obviously a bit more of a global thing of, of why strength conditioning or why the physical aspect um in particular rather than some one of the other facets or disciplines but mm. bit of a roundabout way maybe by chance but um it's the, the personalities that, and things that you get here have really kept me within the sport just with the people that you meet on a daily basis and just how everybody's trying to be better and then that's just what you've got within the sport but at the same time everybody's so personable and some of the nicest people you'll ever meet so yeah totally so uh so so grounded you know we're talking multiple world champions world number ones and it, it's both it's maybe it's strength and it's weakness squash you know that actually you got ali farag chatting to the crowd before he goes on to a world open final and it's you know amazing that we have the touch points but maybe it also doesn't give it that professionalism um and, and we're definitely going to go down some some roots of what you just said about the physiology of squash players and we, we've had a bit of a chat leading up to this and, and and that's the big things we want to try and explore uh you mentioned commonwealth games were you were you in birmingham during the commonwealth games Did did you get to go see much? Yeah, so uh, all of our work was sort of done up to it. Um, they basically kicked us out of our building for about three, four weeks because the squash and the hockey were both hosted within the, the, the centre itself. Um, so I took a bit of time. I went away to um, on holiday. So I actually seen a, a really good friend of mine um, from Belgium who's a squash player, and I went and spent a bit of time with him, Jan van den Herwegen. And then <laughs> yeah. when I came back then, 
it's um, it was kind of all systems go. So obviously you had Joel the second seed. So I spent quite a lot of time going to see him. Um, and then also the fortune with the the hockey, the, the women's hockey team at the university. We had six of the eight team who were competing for the the England team. So nice. spent a bit of time going to see those. And then just generally as a sports fan, sort of tipped around a couple of the other venues, and it, it was phenomenal. And you know it was great to have here. Um, great to have a couple of medalists that we had here. I mean. Um, Obviously, just to see everybody in Birmingham and all the great athletes around was was fantastic. But I would say all my hard work was done, and mm. I more just was a fan and sort of an observer and that great. sort of thing around the time. So it was, it was mm. great. And uh, well, we maybe just zoom in on that on that final real quickly with um, Joel and Paul, and, and he, he looked great, man. And you know, at one point it looked like the pendulum was going to swing towards him. What did you think of the final? You've obviously spoken a bit with Joel, maybe obviously before and afterwards. What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I guess it's still a bit of a touchy subject where um, it's amazing to come away with a silver medal, but I, I think of how close Joel was to getting that gold and, and how much like it really was project gold medal. Um, like we sat down probably nine months before and really mapped out a plan that well, what is the best way to attack here. And um, I, I guess Paul at the end, and he showed why he's been the best player uh, this year or last year, he, why he was world number one. And Maybe that quality was just that tiny bit higher in the fifth game. So it, it was a pretty tough one to take, um, I think, for everybody involved. But I think it, when we look back at it, the silver medal is, is fantastic. But I think Joel will be very open in saying that that's not the one that he went for. Um, and, and that's, you know, how it is. But that, that's that's professional sports. That's professional sports. And um, it's on to the next job. That's the mm-hmm. thing, you know, it's a disciplined pro just moves on and, and uses what they have. So. But the, the final itself was phenomenal. Obviously, it, it really did, you know, swing around the place. And at one stage, I thought we were actually going to do a bit of a number on Paul, but that was me being a bit, uh, yeah, a bit stupid, I think. Um, no, no, no. Mm. But, yeah, it, it was fantastic. And then, obviously, the venue we had here was, was phenomenal. I think there was 2,500 spectators that, that were potentially there. And then um, we had the opportunity to go on the court just uh, to get pictures with Joel's friends and family and stuff after, which... It was just an amazing venue, amazing experience. Um, but obviously, just tainted by that slide, yeah. we would have wanted to get the gold. Hundred um, percent. So I wonder how much. Uh, you know, whether we go a little bit broad to start and maybe get into detail, you know, project goal, that sounds really interesting. I'm sure people listening about, Oh, what project goal, nine months worth of work. Um, how did that journey develop with Joel? Was there like, you know, some big basics you want to get right? I'm just plucking things from the air here, you know, but more balanced on the shot, a bit more explosive, a little bit more recoil out of it. What did that look like? And how did that develop over, over those nine months? Yeah. So um, I guess with Joel, obviously what you see on court is what, what, what I think is, and it's, it's, I'm biased because I work with him, but he, to me is the best athletic mover we have in the game at the moment. And you've obviously got this polarized sort of, a perceptual mover, someone like Ali Farag, who just reads the game so well and really like stays in the back of people. And then you've got this true athlete, like an athletic mover who picks up balls that just nobody else can and potentially just elongates like, you know, very few can. Um, it's really just about cleaning up sort of scheduling um, to really get the most out of where he's, he's investing his time and energy. And everybody thinks, you know, fantastic, be a professional athlete, but these guys are humans and you know their physiology isn't too much dissimilar to what you'll get from a normal person they're just a bit further on down the scale so there's specific movements we worked on um that that he just needed to clean up and refine slightly there's actually a bit of emphasis taken off some of the physical qualities that he was trying to develop 
um, because we could maintain those through very little work. So actually investing more time and energy into not getting much reward out of them. So mm-hmm. we were able to then place that onto you know, developing a different energy system rather than you know, really, really going after, say, the red zone work, so that really high-end work that produces really, really high heart rates. Mm-hmm. You get that from squash quite a bit anyway, mm-hmm. um, So, but it is underpinned by different physical qualities. So it's really trying to blend the training process together, looking at what he already has, what he already is getting, and then how do we supplement that or complement it with accessories um, while still fitting into, you know, having a life. Like that's really mm-hmm. what people don't see as a professional athlete. They think it's 24-7 training and it really isn't, you know. We've got other aspects outside of here that is uh, is really, really important because obviously you would definitely know, Jesse, that, that mental component that people need to bring into things as well and, you just constantly push somebody down into fatigue and then they end up breaking in a different fashion, not physically. Mm. So that, that was really it for him. It, it's where, where should we invest time? And that even crosses across into the squash domain as well. Like where, where, where can we invest time now to really get the benefits? And then everything's linked and we've got you know, mm. physical, technical, tactical, and then cognitive to your lifestyle then sort of underpinning all that. So it was, um, yeah, it was a really good conversation. And then I guess from that, it's obviously uh, getting stubborn athletes, um, not just Joel, but to really buy into, okay, this is this is what we're going to do and this is this is where we're going. And that's sort of after the decision's made, then it's it's really just following that up with just consistency of mm-hmm. application and trust. So nice. Well, that, that, that links me very closely to something that I, I did want to invest because I'm really curious. I want to learn here. The listeners want to learn the, the physiology side. I'm going to always slightly maybe overlap the mental side because I think, I think how these work hand in hand. And when you're working with these top athletes, whether it's squash players or in other fields, and, and we might talk about those other athletes at some point, what type of attitude do you see them bring to the table during the training? I know you mentioned lifestyle and that's actually a really good point. You may be brought up, but you know, th- there's going to be certain attitudes, maybe certain themes that come up. What, what comes to mind when I ask that? Yeah, I guess the, you would have an attitude that people always have is that desire to be excellent. Um, the, I think we, we spoke just briefly beforehand and I think it, You've said four things, I guess, that if anybody walks in the room that I'm always looking for in that one instant that sort of sparks elite athlete to me and, and really professional. And you've sort of got that like they're in charge. They're, they're, they have the ownership of their their program and, and where they want to go. And sort of I'm almost the facilitator in some regard to that. So sort of they'll come in that no matter what, they're there. So it's that disciplined approach. It's like a, a saying I like is a pro goes to work. Like that's mm-hmm. that's what they do, you know, whether they feel like it or not. So when they're there, then it's sort of that ownership model that they're going to take. And then it's that strive to understand. So that they're always looking to understand the training process themselves and where this might fit in, how it might, why does it fit into this sequence in particular? Um, sometimes I would hold my hands up. It's difficult to answer those questions. You know, it's a, uh, Sometimes you get put in the spot and it, is, it isn't the easiest, but they're sort of two of the big things that you'll see when you're in the room. Um, that they obviously, when a pro goes to work, they, they know what their main drivers so that they have a real understanding of what's getting them out of bed and, and why they're there. Um, and yeah, that, that's 
you know, when you have a bad day, it's like, why do you still get up and why do you still turn up? And mm-hmm. they have a real understanding of what that is. Um, and then, yeah, they'll apply themselves to the best of their ability on that day. And I think that's where you know, great relationships sort of come in between coach and athlete where, you know, if somebody, if it's going to take away from a following day, then we, we change the training process on that right. day to maximize the following. Um, mm. So they, they're always open. Um, but it's, it really is that sort of being in the room and being disciplined mm. in the first place. Like and then that. everything's sort mm. of coming off it. And, and this is where, again, I think when, you know, going back 10, 15 years ago now, when, when my strength and conditioning was done, it was that was definitely the old school method, like, you know, turn up, grit your teeth, show mental toughness by looking physically tough. And it was quite mindless. There was no, I, I just wrote down the word curious. It sounds like you can spot the curious, not spot the curious athletes, but if you see an athlete that's curious about what they're doing, they are, they're quite mindful of that moment. And that, that for me is really important. That's again, a lot of the research I'm trying to do is this, you know, mental toughness, what it was maybe 20 years ago is nothing actually what we understand of it right now. And I really like that, that concept of that athlete taking ownership, but then being curious about the development. And yeah, as you said, it might put you on the spot a bit going, Oh, actually, yeah, just trust me sometimes. <laughs> but, and, and sometimes you just can't answer it. Can you? Yeah, it's difficult. I would probably have two examples from a Yan BM one. Um, we spoke about earlier where, he obviously is a, a genius PhD, he's a, he's a doctorate, etc. So he was very inquisitive and he would mm. put you on the spot and he wanted to know everything. And that was probably the first athlete I had that really, really wanted to delve into it. And okay. I would say I learned quite a bit from um, from that process. And then you, you sort of spot from it where another athlete was on the fringe of their international team that I worked with. And um, But right off the first interaction, I was like, mm. they're going to make it because of that inquisitive nature that they had where they just wanted to understand why they were doing so then mm. they could apply themselves or find a different way to actually maximize that if it was important to performance. So, yeah, it's sort of two examples. But Yam was definitely mm. the first I was exposed to where I was like, whoa, he wants yeah, to know yeah. everything here. Um, what so what? What then happens with, um, because I love that. And again, I've worked with squash players who are, (laughs) sounds a bit weird, this almost too clever to play the game of squash. And what I mean by that, overthinking becomes a huge thing. It's it's like paralysis by analysis, maybe not so much in the SNC, possibly yes, as well. How do you then help an athlete navigate that field in regard to, yeah, listen, great, you're curious, but you know what, like get out your own way sometimes. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's always going to be difficult to think, um, it's always going to be underpinned as a foundation of, of how much like trust and, and sort of the relationship with yourself. And, you know, you've obviously got this perceived ability initially, but then that'll grow through time, depending if it's good, bad. And, um, you know, it's sort of underpinned by that and what you're going to push forward to them. So I think when you've got that, you can have real uh, conversations with them first and foremost, when in the absence of, of that relationship and then that trust that's, they're never going to get out of their own way because they're not going to. But I think it's just evidencing to them that, um, you know, you have their best interests at heart here and Mm -hmm. really like trust what you're saying, buy into it. And then it's going to take time and and that's it. You're not going to change a person's persona or personality overnight. You can maybe chip away at it very, very slightly or, in different instances as well, you can be quite clever with the, the training process that you might put them through where, 
For instance, if somebody wants to work hard every day, then you can manipulate the training process to still be training, but get a different um, aspect out of it. But mm. I think from the sort of mental and cognitive overload perspective, um, it is just working with them on a, a regular basis. And it does happen, I think, if you constantly, it's a pressure cooker. And if you're staying in there too long, you will feel a couple of times and that's sort of burning out. And it's having, it's almost allowing and having safety nets for people to fail and make mistakes in that regard. And then sort of explaining why the, what we're doing at the moment may not be the best approach long-term mm. down the line. So but as I say, it really is all underpinned in the first place by that person actually wanting to listen to you and wanting your, mm. your advice. And then it's going to happen multiple times, especially with junior athletes where, it's just about work, 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 mm. or squash, 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 or this, this, this. And, mm. you know, it's, it is, it's too much after a while and just becomes um, a bit too much. So Totally. And a lovely, lovely way to put that, Mark. And and what, what I'm hearing you say, relationships has cropped up a couple of times in, in your conversation, which I like. Lifestyle is also cropped up, which I think is important. And I think they all overlap that, you know, when you build that relationship with the person, maybe, maybe not, but you could maybe give them some lifestyle directions, not that you ever want to preach to anyone, but if you're aware of these things, then all of a sudden you're not, you know, if, if you just pigeon yourself into an S and C coach and just go, I'm turning up to get my S and C for Mark. Actually, we, we've got to put so many more hats on, don't we? So how do you, you know, do you try and help people with some of the lifestyle choices and obviously relationship is something you build, but, but if someone comes to you and, and you can see they glazed over, you can tell that something is wrong in their life. How do you then navigate that type of um, mindset of the athlete? Yeah, I guess with lifestyle, as we sort of spoke about earlier, it's very much do as I say and not as I do. Um, personally, just we're probably taking a lot too much work on than what I uh, I should. But <laughs> yeah, it would happen on a regular basis. And I think it, I, with a coaching hat on, I, I think going to the days where it's all about numbers or it's all about just that session, and a lot of it doesn't just entangle itself altogether. And, from a lifestyle perspective, it manifests itself physically as well. Yes. So you will see people come in with huge bags under their eyes or really stiff hips and that you just can't release through. And that just opens up the, the sort of area for questioning and sort of what's going on. And sometimes you're not the best person to tackle that. And that's why I would always implore people to get a strong team around them of, of potentially different personalities where it is a bit easier for someone who's quite a green personality, so quite like fluid and unfriendly, um, to maybe get a bit more out of that person than what I would, who's relatively red at different instances. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you need to use a team around, but absolutely you would have to tackle that problem. And depending on what um, information is given to you, then it depends on the severity that you have the action. So is it something that genuine advice from me could help? Or do you have to seek advice or specialisms from somebody else? Or do they have to seek specialisms or advice from somebody else? So I think at the same time, it's knowing where your specialism ends or or your knowledge base ends, where you would have a general idea. But outside of that, then if it is a bit more um, just gross, then you would need to to look for someone else. But I I think that's it. And it's all the physical adaptations are all based on a, a foundation of, arrested you are really so if you're coming into the gym and you're not a great a great place then you're not going to be able to apply yourself even close to 100 percent. so it's it's knowing times to push and and when to pull and i think that's Mm. um i I genuinely i I think that's one of the strongest aspects that a a genuine coach would have um 
beyond the actual skill set of describing sets, reps, and understanding mm-hmm. the game. It's, it's understanding how people work. Um, yeah. Yeah, having that um, that 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 EQ rather than the IQ, isn't it? That emotional Absolutely. intelligence is, yeah, such a and they call it the soft skills, and it's like, no, 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 that's not the soft skill, dude. That is like that is that's the kind of top level type stuff. Um, right. But that links me quite nicely into, into the the next little thing I'd maybe like to mention is, um, you know, I, I'm I'm obviously talking a lot about mental toughness and obviously mental toughness in in the arena and the building up to it. But for you, what does mental toughness look like when looking at it through the lens of an S and C coach? So, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess it's difficult because um, I think like squash coaches will still see the physical punishment as being mental toughness. Which I think if you were to ask any S and C coach, we're we're not a big fan of sort of running an extra load of court sprints because somebody made a mistake. Um, there's obviously links between being physically tough and mentally tough and being able to be confident. But I think for me, mental toughness really is just being able to fall back on the confidence that physically you have this. You can fall back to the level of training that you've had. And you know that from that, that you know training has put you in a position to continue going on here. Um, so, so for me, that's how the two interlink more than anything else. It's you know that you can cope with what's being given at you at the minute um, and really, really push through it. Or you know that yeah, you have full confidence in the training that you've done um, within coming to the gym, within the S and C environment. Uh, for me, the mental toughness really is just seen from being in that room in that instance and really having the discipline, knowing that this is going to be hard, but this is what's going to come out the other end and. That's where you know the, the guys who want to understand the training process, um, they know what they're going to get out of it. They know what it's going to cost them, and then they basically can put up the the risk or cost versus reward to that, and how much then this is actually worthwhile. And I, I've had some gen- genuine conversations with players um, where what we have planned, and they do a session or two, and the, there has been real reservations, thinking like this is going to cost me quite a lot, and. In their conversations that you have, you know, and um, to be able to evidence, and then ultimately it's up to their decision. Again, that's the when when they've decided, then it's about applying and, and really getting through. So, I, I think confidence and discipline—they're the, they're the two. Uh, yeah, they understand that. I've just known that this is going to hurt. Um, but this is what you're going to get out of it. Mm, really, really um, well go. said. Mm, really, really well said there, Mark. And, and again, I'm really glad we're having this conversation for these reasons because, yeah, it's, it's you know, maybe young athletes going, yeah, I'm having got a strength and position, I'm pushing myself hard, so I'm automatically going to be mentally tough when I step onto the squash court. I'm like, but no, they're, 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 there's, there's the mind, and, and you say it there, a big thing I talk about, mental toughness is clarity. I, I'm, I'm very big on my, the players I'm trying to get on court going, no matter what's going on around you, have you got clarity in the moment? You can hold yourself accountable to something and stick at it. And that's not known to with gritting your teeth. That gets into the whole territory of, of mindfulness and practicing meditation and really being present and using your senses to be in that moment. And it sounds like you're trying to navigate that area as well, which is, which is brilliant. So no, really thank you for saying that. Um, one thing we had a, a chat about before we jumped on as well is you talk about seeing some common themes across multiple sports. Um, what are these common themes and, and how does this actually also shape how you train these athletes? So what comes to mind there? Um, yeah, so I guess I'm fortunate to work this year. I'll work with four different sports um, to, to work level. So we, I sort of get exposed to top athletes and we're talking like Olympians and, and World Cup uh, winners and uh, obviously your top 10 squash players and top 30 squash players and then 
also in, in hockey, like Commonwealth goals. So you, you sort of see common themes of the athletes that, that you're exposed to. And I mean, the human body is a human body. So like physiologically and biomechanically, it somewhat moves like the same. You have to apply it to different sports. And I guess my job as a coach is to really understand the specific movements and, and the specific aspects of that sport to then be able to train the person um, to tolerate it and actually excel within it. Um, so there's obviously quite big overlaps physically um but then i think we've touched on it quite a bit in terms of that like mental attitude that you get and um each of those athletes that really do rise to the top you, you know within a few interactions with them of why they are as talented and in inverted brackets as what they are where they, they they have full control of the program or sort of their understanding of where they want to go so the drivers that they want to get there and then they use people to, to, to get there. They, they, they use me to, okay, well, this is a problem for me. How do we really go about that? And then you'll see a lot of common themes um, of just how, yeah, the, the common themes mentally of when people walk in the room and how they want to interact with you and, and where they want to go and then how they're going to get there. Um, the, the physical side, while it differs between sport to sport, um, it's sort of my job as a coach to problem solve with the athlete to, mm -hmm. to really see where we're going to go. And then, as I say, from the interactions that you have, it's they know where they want to go. Um, mm. And to a certain extent, they know how they're going to get there. Um, mm. And then it's just using the best people around to, to actually be able to facilitate that for them. And then, Awesome. So, so devil's advocate here, you, you, you spot that athlete. So, so it sounds like you've got a nice blueprint of seeing, you know, what that athlete could offer quite early on. What happens when you maybe have to have a tough conversation a few weeks down the line, or you, you, you're just seeing the fit is not there. Um, you know, are, are you in a luxurious position where you don't have to work with those athletes or do you have to actually still commit with them, but try and, ultimately make them make their own decision isn't it because it's no point you trying to hammer them for getting in the gym and doing their reps and doing the right thing if you seeing their mind is not there they're not curious they're not engaged but they're doing it because they have to how does that go for you yeah uh as i said being a red personality i don't mind the, the difficult conversations that we might have so it comes naturally to me <laughs> um i'll try to do it in a way sometimes but yeah there is obviously instances where, where it's serious but I, I guess it depends on on the athlete we're talking about where if it's um a developmental athlete so quite a young um athlete in comparison to maybe a performance level athlete for a young athlete you may um you'll set up an environment around them um that you'll try to give them as much autonomy as what they can handle in that instance um You'll obviously yeah, try to build up some sort of culture, community around them where they can sort of like build. So a lot of it's based off self-determination theory, which would be quite um, hot on here. And then obviously over time, you, you try to provide more uh, layers to that. And it, it is difficult sometimes when you see junior athletes and, and sometimes they're just not mature enough. And it is accepting that sometimes and that maturity comes at different stages and um, desire comes at different stages that you we, we talk the you know the, the habits of being a top 10 player are markedly different to being having the habits of a top 100 player so mm -hmm. goal setting that there's loads of different things that come into it and you'll have a variety of strategies that you'll try to really get people to come down the route that you believe they, they can go down but ultimately there is always a ceiling and and you know not everybody can really have the the ability to get there but if you've got your performance level athletes, then they're obviously a slightly different where 
the the difficult conversation has to be had quite quickly with them because um, there are those one percent margins that are going to end up winning and losing a game. Um, so it's just having you know rationale for those guys and really understanding you know like why this is really really important to them at one time and they know the the cost of what they're doing at the minute of not fully buying into that process. So I guess the other two contrasts, but yeah. I think it's just being aware that, you know, people are people, I make mistakes, they make mistakes, um, but it's just trying to guide people along to ultimately being better people. Um, like sport, the sporting realm is one aspect of it, but, you know, academia is another, life's another, um, and it's always trying to upskill them to be a, a just better generally and sports mm. some people will gravitate away from, but if they have the skills to then succeed in business, then that's another um, avenue that, that we can hopefully bring them down a bit more. So yeah, a bit contrasting, but I guess, yeah, difficult conversations for me happen quite easily. So mm. I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> I don't want to get on the wrong side of you. So hopefully I, I can, I can keep you on my good side for the rest of it. And, but, but what you said, there's really super interesting. I'm being, being a good citizen. I, I've really started to explore that concept a little bit going, yes, you want to be the best in the world. You want to be the best you can be, but if you're so blinkered and and everything around you is you've left it in your wake, as in, again, the relationships with your parents, your family, your people around you. And actually when you can flip it and go, you know, this win at all costs mentality can be really, really unhealthy. And it's like, how can we get the athletes to get that balance right of yes, winning is a huge thing. We put it on the table, but that shouldn't be the only blinker driving force. Cause what happens when you do win, when you get that gold medal, but it, like three hours later, you still got the same failures in your characters. You still got the same relationship problems. And it's going, have you built the athlete as a good citizen? And I'm, I'm hearing you, you, you're quite big into that, are you? Yeah, I think it's what a university environment sort of lends itself to. And if you were to ask the university, I guess, what the ultimate goal for, say, our scholarship model in developing these international athletes, it's more to develop world leaders, you know, or, or world leaders. But that, that's really it for us. And we, we have a stat here that, you know, 69 out of the last 70 scholars that came through our program have left with two ones or above wow. to nearly 100%, where I think the average is you know less than 80 percent so hmm. there's a lot of emphasis put on developing everybody as people um i, I think it's one of those things it's, it's difficult as well because you you obviously have a driver of what you want to achieve um mm-hmm. but, but when you achieve that then you find out that you know what's changed um and that's the difficulty with it and that's why i think people you know if, if you want to achieve money i i think when people achieve money then then it actually becomes okay, I wasn't after money, but I was after what money potentially brings me. And I think it's being able to open people's minds up to a bit more of actually what's the, what, what are they actually trying to achieve versus what's the superficial nature that I guess we've created to, to showcase that. So it, it's it's tough, you know, because, you know, you, you still need that driver for people to get out of bed ultimately. Um, and then you have to change or reframe it, I think, but you sports psychs would love um, when they actually do achieve it. <laughs> so totally and and that yeah there's there's a, a big thing i i did quite recently you know kind of the, the different forces at play for motivation extrinsic and intrinsic just broke it down into those two buckets and you know it's, it's when you find yourself big time priority a majority of the time in the extrinsic the the title the status the 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 kind of world ranking and your identity becomes so wrapped up in that 
extrinsic motivation and that that can become really damaging you need a bit of both and i think the top in the world have to navigate that well and is there different lenses you change at different points you know for me i believe in the heat of battle it's it's more about the slightly intrinsic side are you mastering that 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 moment are you are you really immersed in it with yes winning is there in your periphery maybe in the weeks and months up to it it's like right maybe it's the extrinsic the gold medal project like you said it's it's that 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 can be the driving force and i think sometimes athletes don't get that right and maybe that's your job my job our job to to keep those conversations going i think that gets really interesting when the athlete can do that they become mentally tougher in my opinion yeah and that's difficult as well because i think as coaches um i want to win you know, that's it's sort of difficult for, for us to impart that knowledge when sometimes we're sort of stuck behind that too. And mm. I think that's, you know, that sort of outer body experience where if we could actually see that for ourselves, then you would probably take yourself down a different route. So, um, yeah, I probably learned something a bit there about myself as well. So <laughs> Good stuff. I'll, uh, I'll have to give you some uh, some codes for Squash Mind and jump onto your first lessons. <laughs> um, so I thought what could be quite good now is maybe getting into a little bit of detail with some different demographics. So um, I sent you four different demographics and, and maybe you could help understand because I know a lot of range of people listen to this. So maybe stripping it down, what would maybe be some of your best advice for some of the following type of athletes? So I'll name all four and then we'll go individually. So for me, teens wanting to play at the college level uh number two young pros you know in their first few years on the tour number three older retiring pros and number four keen club players that 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 aren't um pro but just love their squash um do you want to pick one to start with and and what what advice would you give those type of athletes yeah i guess we go to just the teens first and foremost to go to college level where um finding great advice finding a great coach obviously who can like push you in the right direction and that's from a, a squash perspective obviously and then a physical perspective with that but I think for those guys um, if we start globally I guess first of all it really is developing just an understanding um, as we've touched on it a few times and you know like what what side of play do you have what philosophy do you have and then you're really going to start to go down a certain route there potentially on what you need to shore up to, to actually be a college player or sort of move down that route and get into the teams Physically, then obviously fits into that, you know, the physicality, um, or it'll underpin technically and tactically how you want to play. So, from that, then everything's sort of dictated. Then, if we have a player who's really, really skillful, then we're going to train him completely different to a player who's, you know, a bit more of an counter-attacker and has to, you know, have a much higher fitness level. So, I guess it, it really does understand that um, first and foremost, but. Ultimately, for those guys, training is going to be good. So it's having a, a general level of fitness. So that'd be aerobic fitness. So you know, get on a treadmill or get on a bike, um, you know, play hard squash matches. It's going to encompass all of that. Have some sort of, you know, strength program in there because when you get to you know, college level, um, the kids that are going to be strong, they're going to be, they're going to be up there to start. You'll, you'll be mm-hmm. playing a higher level and, you know, your joints will be a bit more um, just prone to injury at that stage and you're going to be playing a bit more. So it's really getting the foundation just in play to be able to maximize your squash ability. And I think strength for young athletes is, is one of those ones that definitely should be in there. Um, and then obviously get good advice and guidance around that is what you do. But in general, they, they should squat really well and hinge really well. Um, okay. yeah, they're the two exercises. 
That's a good little caveat to put in. If, if any young uh, or teens listening here, not, not to just kind of sign up to the gym and just go try bench press the whole gym in, in your first 10 sessions. And all of a sudden, everything is just, oh, I've heard I need to do strength training. Let's just go do strength training. I, again, Wolf said that seek out the right advice, the right coaches, maybe research the the the, the strength and conditioning coach you're going to work with just to un- make sure that, that he knows that he's got your best interest at heart as well. Um, yeah, bench press isn't going to get you far in squash. Um, I would actually argue it'll probably hinder you very, very slightly because you're going to build upper body mass which then you have to trail around the court um so it's yeah be, be smart with it as i say squats and a hinge pattern are the two fundamentals that you'll need as a, a junior athlete for sure can you just explain quickly hinge yeah so it'd be your rdl pattern so more your glutes and hamstring okay. um so everybody is obviously aware of a squat going up, up and down but a hinge is where you would sit um, your knee would bend, say, five degrees or be reasonably stiff-legged, and then your hips would sit higher and up, upwards. So essentially what you're doing is, is loading the hamstring, so it would um, stretch as well as also strengthen, depending on w- what weight you've got to. So it'd be really, really important just as a fundamental movement pattern um, for sort of, it would underpin, say, coming off the tee, but also in those big extended positions where you push in the lunge, um, mm-hmm. where the hamstring has to be quite long and strong before then the big, bigger, stronger quad associated with squash sort of kicks in after that. Um, but they, they'd be the two fundamental patterns I would get people to learn. And um, In squash, we always tend to go towards more like the quad dominance, I guess, um, yeah. where the hamstring is maybe not just as important, but still yeah, mm-hmm. hugely important, obviously. Yeah. And again, one of the things just reflecting back 20 years, yeah, we, there was, there was not much focus on the hamstring. There was the odd bit, but it was like, right, get those big quads and lunge. And yeah, we're all so reliant and my hamstrings were tight as anything. And it just, it caused big problems eventually. Um, There's probably going to be some overlap with, with some of the others, but um, number two, young pros, uh, you know, their first few years on the tour, any, any physical advice for them? Yeah. You know, look at what the top guys are doing, um, like in terms of their habits and, and sort of scheduling. Uh, ultimately, the, the training process for those guys, they, they haven't just swapped to that overnight. But, it, you know, as I said, if you want to be top 100 versus top 10, what the guys in the top 10 are doing is markedly different to the guys in the top 100 in some regard. But it's going to take you time to get there. For those guys, it's not try to microwave that, is what I would say, is not try to just like jump on and do one of Joel making sessions. Um, I don't think many people could do that. So mm. it's just wait, waiting for the right time or accumulating enough experience. Um, to really start working towards that but ultimately you should have one eye on um you know where you want to get to in the rankings and then seeing you know what what are those guys doing um and then obviously i'm going to say about getting great advice again from your squash coach from anybody else around but that's ultimately if you want to go to the top then what are those guys doing how do they train um you know because ultimately they're, they're where you want to be and i'm probably surpassed by you know, the pace of squash is obviously going up and things at the minute. So in reality, if you're a young pro, you, you may well have to be fitter than what the, the guys at the top are at the moment. So mm. that's uh, it's almost looking one step ahead. But I, I, I would start there as a general advice. And if you want to get somewhere, then where do we need to get to? And then it's working back from that in terms of, you know, if they're training twice a day and you're only training once a day, you're definitely not going to go from once to twice every day in, uh, you know, the click of a fingers. But we're trying to work and accumulate enough volume to, to get there eventually because uh, you've got time. You know, everybody thinks that they need to get there in an instant. Um, but as a young pro, you know, 18 to 20, you know, you'd rather be a great senior at 27 than 
be a great junior and never actually become a great senior. So just, um, yeah, work out what you need to improve and then take time to get there. Solid, solid advice. Um, then three, older retiring pros, what, what, what advice would you give those type of players? Yeah, I guess it, it depends what level we're talking there. Um, if we're talking, you know, your top 30 players and things and, and guys who still have another couple of years to go, it's just being very direct with what you're trying to improve and what you're trying to train. So that's where you can look at specific movement patterns that aren't as efficient enough at the moment or, you know, could we do a lot more easier work that isn't as fatiguing and allows us to really focus on um you know, what's important, what's most important at that time. So you can actually take a bit away from their training process to make sure that what they're doing, they're getting the most out of. So then whatever time and energy they, they have to spend, that it's just maximal. Um, so that, that would obviously be the big thing for them, but it, it's understanding their drivers, like where do they want to go? Are they setting things up for after? Um, and yeah, it, it's um, being able to facilitate as that, that as best possible. But they're going to be a bit different where potentially they, they already have, it, have the habits in place. Mm-hmm. It's just now training, like changing the mindset or the approach across in the game. You know, you're not young. You don't recover as well as what you have done in the past. You have other things going on. So what you have to, what, what you are doing has to be very directed in, in nature to make mm-hmm. sure that we're getting everything that we need to from that. And uh, and finally, this might be the demographic you don't do as much work with, but um, your your keen club players. Uh, any, any thoughts on, I suppose, quite generic advice for people who might not even do any physical training? They just turn up, they play squash once a week, twice a week with their mates. Um, any any tips there? Yeah, I guess it depends how often you play squash. Um, but you'd be looking for those guys who, who likely have a full time job and a family and things around that were. You would want to layer things on top of what they're already doing. So you've obviously got your your injury potentials that, that squash is going to give you, I would say, for those older populations of, say, your Achilles tendon potentially or your calf strains just in the, the mechanisms of movement. So you're probably going to want to put some sort of like calf work in there, some body weight work. Um, you're going to want to have a decent mobility routine because your hips are probably um, in a bit of trouble. Uh, just from sitting around all day, you might have lower back issues, but you want to just layer it on top of what you're already doing. Obviously, it's fantastic if you can open up more time to, to go into the gym and you know, do extra conditioning work or some strength work. But I think everybody, you would rather get something done than nothing. And if the only time you have to get something done is around the squash, then, you know, an extra five minutes at the end or 10 minutes at the start for some ability, then that's the best place to do it then because, you know, it's going to pay dividends across the, the you know, across the years where, you will get injured from just simply playing squash at some stage. It's probably going to happen just with lifestyle combining with, with trying to be a decent uh, squash player. Mm. So I think just layered on top. Um, but again, it comes back to those fundamental patterns. If you can squat well, hinge well, for those guys, um, and then a, a good mobility routine. And, you know, it's, it's something obviously on Instagram, you, you've got decent uh, sites that you go on that you could potentially get some easy ones. I know Joel even put one up there recently. Um, it's just fantastic. Use the resources available for you for those guys. Perfect. Really solid advice. Thanks. Thanks for going into that detail there, Mark. And probably links me into, into the next thing that I think is really worth talking about. Um, and it's a pretty big subject, so we're not going to go too granular with this, but, but injuries. When an athlete has an injury, you know, long-term, short-term, it depends on the sport, depends on the injuries. But I'm not interested initially in about the injuries, but 
for you, any top tips or advice about the type of mindset and attitude they should employ to make the greatest gains? I think that's, that's what I'd like to drill into a little bit. Yeah, I guess uh, from a coaching perspective, well, from a physical coach, um, while well, I obviously want to win, but for me, sometimes an injury is actually a good thing because it actually takes them away from the competition environment and it actually gives me a block of time where I can work on, on something that's potentially weak for them. So I think first and foremost for, for a player, it's acknowledging the injury. I think everybody sort of goes into denial a bit and the severity of it and how long it might might take you to come out of it where I think it's just understanding that, that this has happened and then we sort of have an approach to, to, to get over it. So, But then, as I say, it is that positivity and bringing you know, into that competition uh, or in that tournament mindset that you have. You can apply that to the training now where we are looking for small wins um, in different avenues where, you know, it, depending on what the injury is, you, there is other training um, that's available to you. mightn't be what you want to do, but... It's all about improving and coming out the other end, a better athlete, ultimately. Um, so, yeah, pour your eggs into that basket then when you've got mm. the, the time to do it because that time mightn't come up again. Yeah. You know? And then you might have, like we've seen in sports recently, where seasons are just stacked one after the other and you either have to you know, manufacture that time off or you know, the time's manufactured for you. But it's just been yeah, quite, quite smart around it. And then, you know, obviously... Yeah, I'll come back to listen to the people around you then mm. um, where you get really good advice. And then, you know, it, it's it's knowing that it's going to be tough. And you know, we have obviously quite a lot of injuries that you'll get. You can never fully like reduce or protect from them. So when they happen, everybody's first question is like, OK, well, when will it be back? Um, and it's just making sure that you trust the people who are around you okay. to understand why we are stopping you from going backwards. You know, theoretically, from an ACL, you could return after five months, but you're most likely going to do your ACL again. So it's not the best time to do it. Just leave it for longer and really, you know, let's put it off. So mm. I think, yeah, for, for that, it's it's bringing the mindset you've already got into um, in the other avenues of training and, and acknowledging that that injury has happened and this is <laughs> what yeah, we've got to do. Exactly. There's lots of avenues. And I, I'm glad, again, you said that. I, I think what I'm hearing you say there is, opportunities actually find the opportunities whether it's with your snc coach whether it's with your mental coach whether it's watching more game footage you know analyzing your your um, competitors and actually going right i've actually got a great opportunity I'm, I'm enforced to take this part away from me but boy i've now got a buffet table of things i can go and look at and yeah i'm really yeah it, it, it's a really strong way to look at it i think um and a lot of people just turn around and again yes okay we're focusing on when we can get back and get better 100 fine but realize there's a bunch of stuff on that table that you can pick and choose and actually get better at. So, yeah. And, and then just for obviously the coaching aspect that you've got as well is that motivation will dwindle at different times. And it's just being smart as coaches and mental coach, physical coach and, and technical coach. And is there ways that we can get the adaptations that we're looking for or those positive changes, actually putting them in their environment that really just like upregulates that squash need that they have like can we just put them on a court um, mm. and get that out because it, it, it is like motivation is tough in those in those aspects so it's working hard uh, how do we get the the two to align and where they where they want to be at the minute versus where they are now and then it's having that path just um nice and sequential up to where we need to go 
Have you seen, um, it was maybe a couple of years ago now when Camille Serm had her ACL and she was sitting on a chair in her boot and her coach was giving her these like little volley drops. Brilliant. And I, I did hear on a similar level, uh, Nick Matthew before the Glasgow Commonwealth Games, I think he had some pretty big surgery. You might know what it was, but I heard then he was like, right, I've, my, my, my knee's out of action but I've got three other limbs. I've got, I've got my core, I've got my back. And apparently he just spends so much time on everything else that he could do around that, protect that fully. And yeah, his first competitive game of squash was first round of Glasgow Commonwealth Games and, you know, went and won the gold and played a phenomenal final against James. Can, can you remember what that injury was? Were you aware of it? It was either an MCL or a meniscal tear. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was maybe a meniscal tear that he had just based on a YouTube I listened to quite a while ago where I think he just hit one shot and then, he said he felt something cracked on with it, and then I think it came back. But I, I don't know. That's hearsay, mm. I guess, is, is mm. what I would say with that. But it, it's fairly common to do that, where you know, even if you can do a solo, um, you're still on that squash court. You can still get slightly elevated heart rate, but you can't lunge because you've tore your hamstring or you've got a quad strain. But it's trying to problem solve and find out what they may be able to do. And I, I guess it's common across a lot of sports, and you would say, um, but yeah, you obviously got Camilo Serum still hitting. Um, <laughs> Which, yeah, funny to watch. I'm sure people thought it was mad, but uh, it obviously kept her mentally in the game in that instant, Mm. and that was it. Yeah, it was a shame we didn't actually see her back properly after that, and she did have to end her career slightly short, which is is a real shame. Um, So, Mark, I think this is probably going to be our our last question because you've been really kind with your time, and and I've really enjoyed these avenues we've gone down. But putting on your, your kind of lenses for looking ahead, where do you see the greatest gains being made in the physical side of squash at the elite level? Yeah, great question. Um, I guess, yeah, it'd be specificity of training for the individual athlete where I think while I'm sort of counter, uh, like arguing against one of the points I said earlier about looking at what the top guys do, I think you know there's almost too much of that to a certain extent where the coaches in the past have this traditional model that has worked that will get people really, really far. But it is individualization of training, I think, is probably where it has to go, where you know, we, we can do a running test um, on a treadmill that tells you exactly, like, in your physiology, what aspect has to improve. And, and, you know, it might take you six months to improve that, but it's going to take six months rather than, you know, we'll still be six months further down the line and we actually haven't touched on the, the biggest rock that might actually open up more performance benefit for you. So I think that for me, and then it's going to lead on to, I guess, bed, better scheduling um, for an athlete where I think, Again, just what I see is that we, we try to cram so many things in um, in the training week where we actually improve through the rest and recovery that we might get versus just layering more more training on top. But that's where that sort of specificity of approach allows us to go is that we know where we have to invest time and energy and we know what is a, a non-negotiable at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to sort of construct the, the training week around. But um, I think we're very general at the minute. And I think... Um, the more that it's tough because there's no research in squash um, because it's, it's non-Olympic sport at the moment, which is obviously, we can pull uh, research across from other different sports. So like your badminton and and things where it'd be fairly closely related in terms of the movement patterns. And then we can actually see what the biggest bang for the buck that we can go after. And I think that's where we can invest time in, in the, where are where is the top athlete at the minute versus where do we need them to go? Mm-hmm. And then it's about structure and some sort of training process that gets them there. Where will it go? Obviously, the pace is going up, so people need to be much, much fitter um, from an aerobic and anaerobic perspective. 
faster, stronger, potentially, uh, more mobile. I guess we, we don't know, but that looks to be the trend in, in what's happening at the minute is that everything is turning into yeah, physical contest. Mm. Um, so, nice. yeah. Nice specificity. I, li- I like that. That's not an answer I thought you would say, but that's actually really good because that that whole uh, yeah the general way of doing things. Hey, just uh, again, not that your other point was moot, but but yeah, if you can get specific about you and go, hi, this is this is my data and what I can do with it. Bang, I can get to that next level. So no, re- really, really well said. Thank you, um, Mark. Listen, you've been an absolute treat today. I've loved this again. Very different way of looking at things because I do talk about the mind a lot, but I'm actually really always trying to overlap the physical side because we can't ignore it there's huge link between the two things um but listen where can people find you if they want to follow you or or kind of see a bit more about your work yeah so i have an instagram which i post occasionally on um sometimes it goes depends how much work i've got on at that instant Mm. so sometimes you'll see loads sometimes you'll not see a lot but um i think it's squash performance if you you have a look on instagram it's probably the best place and while while i mightn't post a lot i am on it i probably spend too long on it um (laughs) But I'd welcome anybody to message me just just to, so I can learn from them. I don't come from a squash playing background, although I'm trying at the minute. Um, so the interactions I have with people and actually the, the learning that I can get from anybody and, and there's sort of like theories and thoughts behind stuff. It's fantastic for me just to talk squash, really. Um, and then see, and obviously as with that, then hopefully I can help some people also. Um, but yeah, squash performance, if, yeah. Perfect. And uh, listen, I'm going to be watching closely. You've got it. It sounds like you're doing some really great one. Well, not sounds like you are doing some really great stuff in the squash world. Got a great stable of players uh, you're working with. Um, good luck to you and your players. I, I'm going to be watching with a slightly different eye now, which I'm uh, looking forward to. Listen, have a great day. And thanks very much for joining me, Mark. Thanks, Matt.